Well, thank you very much for the welcome. Lovely to be uh, with you this afternoon. And uh, good to see some are back from holiday. I guess some are away from holiday uh, as well. And we trust that they'll have a, a really helpful, restful time uh, away. I think this is the start of a new series. Is that right? You've had a couple. Okay. Big failures in the Bible. And uh, clearly we're going to think about um, Peter this afternoon. But I want to begin by uh, just mentioning a couple of sayings that you might hear uh, in various contexts. Uh, three strikes and you're out. Uh, I think that might be drawn from American baseball. That's kind of like cricket that's just boring. Or cricket that isn't demanding intellectually, baseball. But anyway, however, uh, they came to, to play the game. Three strikes and you're out. And people use it in terms of, well, you've got three opportunities to get it right. And if you consistently foul up after the third, that's it, you're gone. Uh, others are much less charitable. That's not hugely charitable, but others would be uh, less charitable. And they would say to you, we are adopting a zero-tolerance approach. Get it wrong once, and you're done. Some have tried to employ that in their uh, policing techniques. I'm not going to say whether it's a good or a bad idea, but that's uh, the approach sometimes that's taken. Zero-tolerance. We won't come up to you and say... It's not a good thing to do, and uh, you shouldn't be doing it, and we're going to give you a warning. And if I catch you doing it again, then we're going to take action against you. That approach says action is taken now. Peter failed tremendously badly, as we saw in that reading from uh, John 18. All the Gospels tell us about uh, Peter's failure. Maybe you're particularly uh, familiar with it, as, as you've read maybe in Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, or John. Peter, on the night Jesus is betrayed... Peter, at least with John, back there in uh, John 18 here, verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. It seems like uh, that that is John who is following Jesus with Simon Peter, at least brave enough to go that far. Uh, others of the disciples have already uh, cleared off when Jesus was arrested uh, in the garden. But Peter, when he is challenged, denies three times that he knows Jesus and it doesn't seem as though they were one, two, three, straight after another. You're with him, aren't you? No, I'm not. You are. I'm not. You are. No, I'm not. It seems like there's a little bit of a gap between them. Peter goes there. Uh, as we read, Jesus is in the high priest's courtyard. He has to wait outside. Uh, John goes in. He's known to the high priest. Comes back, speaks to the servant girl, brings in Peter. She says, you're not one of his disciples as well, are you? And he says, no, I'm not. And he would have known in his heart at that very moment... I have denied the Lord. And Jesus had already said to him, look, before the cock crows, you will say three times that you don't know me. You aren't one of his disciples as well, are you? I'm not. Straight away he knows. It's the beginning of his failure. His failure to honour Jesus. He warms himself by the fire. It's a very evocative scene, isn't it? It's dark, there's a fire there, he's cold. But maybe he's shivering inside his soul as well conscious of what he's just done. He has been following Jesus. He has said to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus had said to him, you've not worked that out by your own human ingenuity, Peter. My father in heaven has told you who I am. He knows who Jesus is. He's been following him. He's seen amazing things that Jesus has done. And now he has just said to someone, I don't know him. Imagine what may be going through his mind as he warms himself by the fire. And then there's the uh, 
the movement in John's Gospel to consider Jesus being spoken to at that time and they're questioning him and they're beginning to, to beat him and to torture him. And then back in 25, meanwhile Simon Peter, he's still there warming himself. And so they ask him, the other people who are around, you're not one of his disciples as well, are you? They're saying to him, why are you here? Are you one of his disciples? He's had a chance to reflect on what the girl first said to him. He's had time to reflect on the fact that Jesus says three times you're going to deny me. And Peter has said, no, 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 they may all leave you, I won't. No, three times before the cock crows you're going to say that you don't know me. It's happened once already. He's had time to, to gather in his mind and in his heart a degree of strength and courage to be able to say to himself, if they ask again, I am not going to say that I don't know him. I'm going to make sure that I atone for what I did before by saying, yes, I am one of his disciples. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it, saying, I'm not. And then one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, he challenged him. Very ironic, maybe the guy had been told something about Peter. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? He would have been very concerned about his relative having his ear cut off. And now he can see him maybe in the light of the fire and it was gloomy in the garden. And he's thinking, I do know this man. He's the one who was with Jesus who had the sword. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. The other disciples fill in uh, some of the, the other gospels rather, fill in some of the other details for us. That it was with cursing, swearing, that Peter said that he did not know Jesus. If they were showing it on, on television, uh, either before or after the watershed, there'd be bleeps in what Peter said. Because he got so worked up, so overcome by fear. This man who was going to be so brave is now just undone and he is cowed and he is fearful and he is broken and he is a denier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even with curses. Even with foul language. It was a terrible thing to do. Three times he says he doesn't know him. He's gone as far as trying to help him by being there. But in being there, he says that he's not one of his disciples, not one of his followers. We might say, well, it's, it was just words, Peter, we understand. You were under, you were under tremendous stress. And when they asked you, what, what, well, I think I probably would have said the same as you, Peter. And, you know, let's, let's not worry too much about it. But Peter himself worried a great deal about it, and rightly so. It was not a small thing. Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us that Peter went out from there, conscious of his failure, and he wept bitterly. That's not someone who's got a super sensitive conscience who really shouldn't be worried about what he's done. He realises the gravity of it, the reality of what he's done. Here is, here is God in the flesh. Here is the Messiah. Here is the one who has loved me. Here is the one that I look up to supremely. And I've just said I don't know him. And I've used curses to say that I don't know him. And he said that I would three times deny him. And I had such bravado in my heart. And I had such a certainty that I would not, even if the others did, I wouldn't. And yet I have. And he weeps bitterly. It's a good thing that he wept bitterly. 
Peter has failed tremendously. Maybe just before we come on to where we're going to then go to in John's Gospel, maybe, maybe you know something about the, the Gospels and what happens with uh, Peter and Jesus when they're having the, uh, the Last Supper because Jesus tells Peter that Satan wants to sift the disciples like wheat. He wants to have them. He wants to have them good and proper. He wants to crush them. He wants to bring them down. Simon, Simon, this is Luke 22, 31. Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. I just want to clear up something regarding that before we carry on. Jesus prays that Peter's faith would not fail. You'd want Jesus to pray for you, wouldn't you? He says to Peter, Satan wants all of you, and I have prayed for you individually, Peter, so that you, when you're turned back, you'll be able to strengthen them. How is Jesus going to help them? He'll help them through Peter, through Peter being able to strengthen them. But he tells Peter, I have prayed for you personally, that your faith will not fail you. If there is anyone in the cosmos you want to pray for you, it is Jesus, the Son of the living God. Jesus, whose heart is absolutely in tune with his Father's. Sometimes when we pray, we get into confusion. Is this the right thing to pray for, or is it not? Sometimes we think, well, it's the right thing to pray for it, but I, I've got no worthiness I can bring to God that he might then begin to answer my prayers. Jesus knows what to pray. He has absolute worthiness in praying it. So how come three times Peter says he doesn't know Jesus? Doesn't that count as his faith failing him? I think actually when we read that Peter went outside and wept bitterly, that is his faith failing him not at that point. Jesus wasn't praying that Peter would, would never, in a sense, deny him. What's going on here in this situation is that having denied Jesus, Peter repents. He's so different to Judas. Judas is overcome with remorse. Peter is overwhelmed with repentance, genuinely sorry for what he did. When Jesus turns and looks at him in across the courtyard and Peter departs and weeps bitterly, it is in faith that he is weeping bitterly knowing I can turn back to him and repent of my sin is a statement of faith. It's a statement of saying, I know that God is willing to receive a fallen, broken sinner like me. If Peter had gone out, simply overcome with remorse, and maybe did what Judas had done, then yes, we could say the prayers of Jesus, they were not answered. Jesus' prayer is answered in that Peter is brought to repentance for what he had done. But there is a sense in which having, having repented of that in his weeping bitterly over what he'd done, there is a sense in which Peter then lands up in a bit of a cul-de-sac. No way forward, perhaps, in his mind. Now, I want us to turn then to uh, John 21. I'll, I'll read to us the, uh, the portion that we're just going to think about briefly this afternoon. John 21 from verse 15. Here you have Peter who has denied three times that he knows Jesus. He has failed spectacularly. He has boasted that he wouldn't. Jesus says you will, and he did. His faith hasn't failed him. 
he repents, he weeps bitterly. There is a, a turning back, in a sense, bound up within that. Just as Jesus had prayed for him, that his faith wouldn't fail him. But he's in a bit of a cul-de-sac. I've been in a bit of a nowhere, no man's land at this point. What's going to happen now? Well, Jesus has been raised. Beginning of uh, John here, chapter 21. Jesus has appeared to the disciples. When he first appeared to the women, he said, go and tell my brothers and Peter that they're going to see me in a certain place. So Jesus already including Peter within that. But afterwards, Jesus appeared again. This is John 21, verse 1, just to begin with. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, two other disciples were together, and Simon Peter says, I'm going out to fish. Well, they, they need to earn a living. They, they need to carry on doing at least something. They're in a bit of a hiatus period, but maybe it's not insignificant that it's, that it's Peter who says, I'm going to go out to fish. And they decide that they're going to go with him as well. In his faith, in his service, he's in something of a cul-de-sac because he has failed Jesus spectacularly. And yes, in his heart, there is a turning from that, a recognition and an owning of his sin demonstrated in his weeping bitterly over it. But where is he going to go from here? Well, let's come down to verse 15. Jesus has made them breakfast there on the beach. Uh, They hadn't known who he was. They were in the boat. It reflects an earlier occasion when he tells them how to fish and where to put their nets. And they had a huge catch. Again, there's another one here. And then verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved says to Peter, it's the Lord, that's who it is, the one on the beach. And Peter's off like a hare out of the boat uh, and swims to the shore and helps drag the boat and the net and so on. They have breakfast and then verse 15, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple wouldn't die. But Jesus did not say that he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? I want to pick out three things uh, in what we've just read there. Picking up Peter's failure, the fact that he, in a, a way, has turned back to the Lord. He has wept bitterly over his sin and his failure. But there is a sense in which you can arrive in a bit of a cul-de-sac. 
I've failed the Lord. Things have been squared between us in a sense. But that failure leads me in a place where I can't do anything anymore, can't serve him anymore. There's no way forward for me. So metaphorically speaking, all that you can do is say, I'm going to go out to fish. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Jesus initiates a conversation with Peter and the conversation is about restoring Peter from his failure. Jesus demonstrating to him that failure is not final. Jesus demonstrating that that cul-de-sac, well, he's going to make sure there is a roadway all the way through or there is some way out from there. Failure in the hands of Jesus is not final. It doesn't put an end to a person's Christian life. It doesn't put an end to our discipleship and our walk with Jesus. It doesn't put an end to our serving of him, as we'll see uh, as this passage opens up for us. It is not final. You might think in the first place, though, regarding that, that, yeah, Jesus initiates in grace this conversation. And it is in grace because these things need to be brought out, need to be brought out in the open, put on the table and dealt with. But doesn't he go to town a little bit with him? Peter seems to feel that as well. Because Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Maybe Jesus is wanting Peter there to be conscious. Do you remember the times when you said, even if these fail you, I won't. Are you going to, Peter, do the same thing again? Do you still think that you're better than others in that sense? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's hurt because he asks him the third time, do you love me? Is this Jesus getting his pound of flesh? You really hurt me, Peter. You really did. Three times you denied me. So I'm going to put you on the spot three times as well. I want you to know how it feels. I want it to go deep into your heart. I want you to really learn your lesson through learning the pain of, of what you did to me. That doesn't sound to me like Jesus. I hope it doesn't sound to you like Jesus either. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing at all. On the table... There are three blatant denials that Peter ever knew Jesus. Some of them accompanied with terrible cursing. Jesus asks three times, do you love me? Jesus is demonstrating to Peter that all those occasions of sin can be rolled away and dealt with once and for all. He has an opportunity to make amends for all three. You aren't one of his disciples as well, are you? No, I'm not. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You aren't one of his as well. Surely you are one of his. No, I'm not. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. You are one of his. I saw you in the garden. I am not. Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's not for Jesus' sake for his sense of vindication, for his sense of, I felt bad, I want you to feel bad, that he asks three times. But he is rolling away Peter's sin. He is handling it, he is showing him that the totality of where he went wrong, Jesus is giving him an opportunity now to say, that is done. That is the past. And Peter can repudiate his failure of Jesus. 
in affirming his love for him. Jesus initiates the conversation in order to restore Peter fully from where he had gone wrong in the uh, high priest's courtyard in his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not saying to him, it wasn't really failure. He wasn't lessening the severity of what Peter had done, wasn't lessening the intensity of it, but is demonstrating that where sin abounds, grace more than abounds, it superabounds. Charles Wesley put it this way, plenteous grace with thee is found, grace to cover all my sin. And Jesus is restoring Peter from the totality of his failure. That is a wonderfully gracious thing to do. That's the character of Jesus. That is the character of God. It is not a three strikes and you're out character. It is not a zero tolerance character. Of course, God cannot tolerate sin. He isn't saying, well, it's okay up until a certain point, but if you go beyond there, then I'm going to have to intervene. He is never saying it is okay. It is okay to deny him. It is okay to fail him. What he is saying, though, in the reality of our sin and our failures, is that there is grace and there is mercy to be found in him. We can be restored. We can be recovered. Failure is not final. Then notice the, the particular way in which Jesus handles Peter here. He shows that love is at the centre of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting how Jesus handles Peter here, isn't it? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He does not come and say to Peter, you and I, we've got to have a conversation. Things didn't go well, did they? Courtyard of the high priest. I think there's something you want to say to me, isn't there? I think it begins with S and it ends with Y and there's an O-double-R in the middle, Peter. Got it? And put it together. You owe me an apology big time. Think about the three years we have been together. Think about the times that I have fed you. Think about the times when I have taught you. Think about the times when I have put up with you. Put up with your, your wanderings. Put up with your blustering. Put up with your pride and your arrogance. You think you're someone, but you aren't. You owe me now, big time, an apology, Peter. He could approach it in that way. I think many of us might have an entrance in that sort of way. We may not be so um, forceful about it. Maybe our approach would be to say, hello, Peter. And then we cut him dead. We want him to get the silence speaking to him, saying, you've got to do something to get yourself back into my good books. Or maybe we'd initiate the conversation and we would say, Peter, you went really, really wrong. You failed so terribly. I am so upset, so pained by what you did. Promise me that you will never do that again. Or maybe we would have said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Right, well, if you love me, then this is what's going to happen over these next months. I'm putting you on probation. Peter, I've got my eye on you. I know the kind of man that you are. I know the kind of man you say you are. But actually, I know different. You and I know, don't we, Peter, what's in your heart. So you're going to be on probation. Jesus doesn't do that. 
where we might do that because this is not about Jesus having some kind of recompense for the pain that he felt. When we speak to one another like that, the conversation is about me. It's not about the person that I'm trying to restore. It's about me justifying myself. It's about me having some recompense for the pain that I felt. It's about me dealing with the fact that I have been slighted and I have been affected by your sin. My focus is on my heart, my needs, myself, my soul. Not on you. Jesus does not come and speak to Peter as someone who feels that, that he needs to be reclaimed from the pain that he felt comes to reclaim Peter from the sin into which he fell. And at the heart of that relationship is love. Love is there at the centre. He's not saying to Peter, have you got some good strategies not to fall into the same sin again? That's not going to be ruled out of, out of court, of course. Peter needs to think about it, needs to reflect on it. Maybe that's why Jesus says, do you love me more than these? You've made big claims, maybe you shouldn't. But the crucial thing, whether there are strategies or where there aren't, the crucial thing is not the vindication of Jesus' feelings, but reclaiming Peter in a relationship of love. That's the heart of, of a relationship with the Lord. Do you love me? I'm not asking for a promise regarding the future. Yes, it's true. Jesus himself told his disciples earlier in John, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Love needs to be worked out in that way. But he's not attaching conditions. He's not attaching, well, that there's got to be a demonstration and you are on probation. Simply allowing him to affirm in his brokenness, but in a state of repentance, that yes, Lord, I love you. That is a wonderful demonstration of grace from Jesus to Peter. Not just that he doesn't focus on himself and the fact that he was failed by Peter, also to allow Peter the opportunity to say that, yes, I love you, Jesus. To be able to use words. To be able to use, I don't know if the mouth or the tongue is an organ, but let's call it an organ for a moment or two. To use the organ with which he failed Jesus in the garden. To use that now to affirm his love for him. To speak words that affirm the centrality of love in their relationship. Peter, do you love me? Not, Peter, are you sorry? Not, Peter, do you promise to do better? Not, Peter, are you, are, are, you, are you terribly offended with yourself that you have offended me? But, Peter, do you love me? Notice he's not just saying to Peter in, in saying that and in showing that love is at the centre of this relationship, that, that it's at the centre of being restored into relationship with Jesus. He's not saying when he asks that, Peter, have you got some warm, mushy feelings uh, in your heart regarding me. It's much bigger than that, isn't it? Love in the Bible, it, it's, it's about action that springs from a commitment to a person. And love needs to be expressed. And that's why Jesus, not for, in a sense, economic reasons, not for reasons of efficiency, but because it's about love, he then commissions Peter to go on and serve him. The failure is not final. Love is at the centre, but that love has to have an expression. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Less, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. Do you love me? You know all things. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. 
On every occasion that Peter affirms again his love for Jesus, Jesus commissions him, sends him, authorizes him, if you like, opens a door for him into service to go and take care of and to feed his sheep. Do you love me? It's not enough just to say, well, that's nice. I'm glad you love me, Peter. Love needs to be able to express itself, to authenticate itself in service for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in restoring Peter, opens that door for him. I want you to go and feed my sheep. And how well he is going to feed them as a man who has been humbled, a man who feels deeply his own sin, a man who once thought he was a cut above the rest, the rest of the disciples. Even if they all fail you, I won't. I'm not like that. When he writes his letters, you you see there are a tenderness of, of heart about him. He says that the elders in the church, they shouldn't lord it over others, but they should serve them. He's learned the lesson. He's not lording it over others. Then when he writes his second letter, he writes to those who have a like precious faith as we have. Right to the people, he says, and your faith is as precious as mine and as ours. He doesn't approach them by saying, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you know what? Some of us were there when we were on the mountain with him. It wasn't all the disciples, just me, James and John, and we saw the glory and It would have been great if you could have seen it, but, you know, we can't all see it, can we? But just be thankful for what you know about Jesus. And, you know, but some of us, we've got an inside track. We're we're higher up. We're we're nearer to him because of our, our own personal experience of him. He says, no, you have a faith as precious as ours. He's not elevating himself. He has been humbled. And he is feeding them. He is concerned about them. In that second letter he writes, he says that there are things he wants to write about, but he he wants to now put them in remembrance of certain things. He knows his time is limited, and he just wants to make sure that they don't go astray. That's the heart of someone who is feeding lambs, feeding the sheep, taking care of them. But he's doing so out of love for Jesus. He's not doing so because he's been coerced into that. Jesus has opened the door for him to express his love, in genuine service. Love must be able to express itself. It's not enough simply to have the opportunity to speak words. That was a great thing for Peter to be able to say to Jesus, yes, I do love you. But if Jesus had said, that's nice, and put a full stop there, that would have been, in a sense, of a very limited use to Peter. But to say to him, feed my sheep. He's not saying, I've got great confidence in you, Peter. I know you're never going to go wrong again. There are no conditions, in a sense, attached. He knows Peter is a broken man. He is liable to make mistakes again. And he does. Paul talks about the time when he had to confront Peter face to face because he wouldn't eat with Gentiles, people who hadn't washed their hands. And yet Peter was the one who had been there with Cornelius when Cornelius became a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And he said, you know what? God has shown me I mustn't call anything unclean that that he is now accepting. God has shown me that the door is open to the Gentiles, but then he falls foul of that some years down the line. No, he's not going to do everything perfectly from now on. But Jesus simply says, if you love me, feed my sheep. Go on and serve me, Peter. He knows, above all, that it's not going to be perfect service he'll receive from Peter. But he wants to encourage him in his love for him wants to encourage him to express that love in the service that he gives to Jesus' people. Love for Jesus must express itself 
in love for his people and in serving others who don't know him. And Jesus provides for that because he is restoring Peter. But then one final thing from this. It's a fascinating little uh, section towards the end. Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. Not in great detail, but sufficient detail. says this, verse 19, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter is going to glorify God. When you're older, you're going to stretch out your hands. People are going to lead you where you don't want to go and so on. Then he says to him, follow me. Peter turns, sees John following them and says, what about him? wants to know what's going to happen with John. You know, when I'm older, you've just told me that I'm, things are going to go pretty bad. That I'm going to go places I don't want to go. So I'm going to put my hands out and they're going to lead me there. Whether he's had his eyes put out or whatever, and he's, that's why he's got to be led and he's going to be led off to his death and so on. And he'll glorify God by that death, but he wants to know, what about John? Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. The rumour then spreads, John's not going to die. John himself says, he didn't say that. He's just saying, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? And that's the point. What is that to you? Following Jesus. You need to keep your eyes where they should be. Jesus restores us, not so that we can look around and then say, I want to have the inside track on her. You know, because, you know, she's failed in similar ways that I might have, or different ways, but, you know, we've, we've all failed. You're doing this for me. What about them? In Romans, Paul talks about having to stand before our own master and he will cause us to stand. Not to be looking around at others and saying, what about them? What about them? No, the important thing is, Jesus restores us that we might love him. He restores us that we might follow him. Our eyes have got to remain on Jesus following him. Twice he tells Peter to do that in this passage here. Then he says to him, follow me. And then the bit about John and so on. And Jesus says, what's that to you? You have got to follow me. It's a wonderful thing to be recovered by Jesus. To be brought back into fellowship with him. To be able to express our love for him. To be given an opportunity to serve him. But we can then go astray and start thinking, okay, so that's good for me. What about, what about him? What about her? What about the details? In some ways, some of those details are just to remain between the Lord Jesus and his disciple, whoever that disciple might be. Our primary responsibility is to follow him. It's a great thing for Peter because it reminds him of when Jesus first called him. Jesus called him way back when to follow him. They've been through a lot together. And recently, very recently, the denials of Peter, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, by Peter of the Lord Jesus And Jesus affirms what he first of all said to Peter, follow me. You haven't blown it. You haven't blown it because of the grace of God. You haven't blown it and you are called to love the Saviour. And in loving him, you are called to serve him. It was a huge, terrible failure on Peter's part. It was worthy of him going outside and weeping bitterly. But there was a cul-de-sac. But Jesus does not leave disciples in a cul-de-sac. You might feel this afternoon you're in something of a cul-de-sac in your experience of him. And maybe because of failures in your own life. The purpose of Jesus in love is not to leave you in a cul-de-sac, but to bring you out from there, to commission you to serve him, to follow him, as an expression of your love for him. Because he unconditionally and unreservedly accepts us and loves us in grace. He's a wonderful 
gracious God, we're going to pray to him now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've read of Peter and how we can relate to it, perhaps not in, uh, in the same kind of detail as he went through, but to relate to it in that consciousness of our guilt and our shame and our failure, the ways that we deny Jesus, maybe not by words, but in our deeds. Father, we want to affirm this afternoon that we love the Lord Jesus and we want to serve him. And we thank you for the grace that calls us to affirm that love and then sends us out on service, seeking to follow our Lord and Master. Father, we pray that in following him, we might be able to deal with one another with the same grace with which you have dealt with us. And we thank you for your great mercy and your kindness and ask you to hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. just like to say a short prayer for Richard. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, gracious Father, thank you so much for your blessing of bringing Richard into our lives today. Thank you for enriching our lives with your word as he has done. Bless him and keep him, Lord, on behalf of all of us at the Rotherham Evangelical Church. In thanks and in love. Amen. Right, we're going to sing one final 